Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest today is Dan Harris, who was named co-anchor of ABC News's weekend edition of Good Morning America in October of 2010. He has also been anchor of World News Sunday, a position he has held since 2006. Additionally, Dan Harris is New York-based correspondent for ABC News's broadcast and platforms, including World News with Diane Sawyer, Good Morning America, Nightline, ABC News Digital, and ABC News Radio. He is widely heralded as for, for his work. He has been honored a number of times for his journalistic contributions, including the receipt of a Murrow Award for his reporting on a young Iraqi man who received the necessary help to move to America. And in 2009, Dan Harris won an Emmy Award for his Nightline reporting. Dan, I'm delighted to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So we're going to be talking about a little bit of an unusual subject for us. That is mindfulness, meditation, happiness, and its impact on eating. What got you interested in the issue of meditation and mindfulness? I uh, was assigned to cover religion by a guy named Peter Jennings when I was uh, a cub reporter at ABC News. I was, you know, pre-30. And uh, Peter decided he wanted me to cover faith. It was a big issue for him. I tried to protest and say, well, I'm I'm not a religious person, have really very little exposure to it, and he didn't care and told me, you're going to do it anyway. So I spent the subsequent decade really getting into covering a lot of stuff, especially around evangelicals, and also um, I was overseas a lot covering our wars in in Afghanistan and Iraq. None of the stuff that I was uh, exposed to, though, really spoke to me until I stumbled across this book by Eckhart Tolle, who's a self-help guy who's Oprah is a big fan of his, and I read his book, and I, cu- I couldn't decide whether I thought he was a genius or out of his mind entirely, and it, because he had this extraordinary diagnosis of the way our minds work, that where we're never in the present moment, we're always thinking about the future, always thinking about the past, always rum- comparing ourselves to others, ruminating about what we have and don't have, and never fully satisfied with the current situation, and I thought, okay, that actually really describes the way I, my experience of being in the world at the same time, he used a lot of froofy language and talked about spiritual awakening, awakening and vibrational fields. and So I, I couldn't figure it out. And uh, then my wife gave me a book by a guy named Dr. Mark Epstein, who's a, a psychiatrist and a, and a uh, practicing Buddhist. And I had this aha moment of reading this book and realizing, oh, actually, all the stuff that, that Eckhart Tolle is talking about that really resonates with me is originally from the Buddha 2,500 years ago. And that got me interested in meditation. Then I heard about all this science that says that even short amounts of daily meditation among complete novices can have extraordinary health benefits. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the science, and then I'd like to come back to some of your personal experience with this. When you dipped into the science, what did you find? I found, first of all, uh, well, first of all, when when the idea, uh, when I got interested in, in Buddhism, uh, I obviously very quickly I started hearing all this talk about meditation. And I did not want to do that. I thought it sounded horrible. Um, I had no no desire to do it. And then my doctor told me, actually, there was some evidence that it brings down your blood pressure. So I thought that was, uh, I'm a lifelong hypochondriac. I thought that actually sounded like a pretty good idea. And um, so I gave it a try. I didn't like it at all. Uh, but I kind of stuck with it over time and realized that it wasn't this hippie nonsense that I thought it was. And the science, I then, after doing it for a little bit, got into the science, and the science sh- shows a remarkable range of health benefits. Now, I want to say at the outset that we can't make any grand 
conclusions about uh, the science is very much in its early stages so we can't say for sure it does all of these things but there's strongly suggestive evidence that it brings down your blood pressure that it boosts your immune system reduces release of uh, stress uh, hormones like cortisol in reaction to uh, stressful circumstances um, it can uh, reduce panic and anxiety among people who have terminal illnesses and then the really crazy stuff is what it does to your brain i'll just tell you about one study from harvard uh, that found that the gray matter gets thicker, literally puffs up in your brain in areas associated with self-awareness and, and compassion, and it decreases in areas associated with stress among people who did 30 minutes of meditation a day for eight weeks. So that's very small dosage and a pretty big impact. So there are, there are, there's compelling evidence both uh, uh, physically and psychologically that can have a really serious impact. Well, when you use the word meditation, my guess is it conjures up a lot of different things to people who are listening to this and hearing the word. Tell me what it means when you're practicing it. When you say it produces these benefits, yeah. what do you mean by it? That's a great question. So let me first uh, echo what you just said. When, I, the, when the word meditation was first crossing through my consciousness, I thought it was something that you involved sitting in a pretzel-style position and, you know, staring at crystals and wearing robes and chanting and lighting incense and being around a lot of weird people. That is, I mean, you can do it that way if you want. I'm sure the meditation has that reputation for a reason, that there, there is some history there. But the basics of it, at least in the Buddhist tradition, are incredibly practical and simple. Three steps. I can teach somebody to meditate in 30 seconds. Uh, it's not easy, but it is simple. That's one of the cliches I, uh, that, that often gets tossed around. One, sit comfortably with your back upright. Two, pay attention to the feeling of your breath going in and out of the body. There's nothing special about the breath. What we're trying to do is just to get the mind focused on one thing, and the breath is very portable, always there, so it's usually what people focus on. And then the third step, and this is the end of it, and this is the big one, is every time your mind waters, forgive yourself, and return to the breath. And your mind's going to wander a million times. You don't have to clear your mind that this is a, a misperception. The whole game is getting lost and coming back. And it's, a, a, it's exercise for the brain. And the, the view here is revolutionary, that the mind can be trained like anything else, like the body. And we do bicep curls and get our biceps, you know, tear the fibers in our biceps, and they grow. There is evidence that you can do that with your brain and your mind and that is extraordinarily powerful and very appealing to skeptical people like me. Well, you said you didn't like it in the beginning, but you stuck with it. Well, there was some transformation that obviously occurred. What was it? Yeah, I can't. I still can't say that I love it. It's not like I look forward to doing it. I don't look forward to going to the gym either, but I do it because I know it's good for me and I see a benefit. So when I go to the gym, I feel better. There's no question about it, um, mentally and physically. And when I, exercise, uh, when I do meditation, I feel better. Here's the benefit. Uh, your... Thoughts, impulses, emotions, physical sensations right now, they, they take up all the bandwidth in your brain at any given moment. They, if you think of your mind as a TV screen, they're occupying the whole space. So the thought occurs to you as you're standing in line at Starbucks and somebody cuts you off. The thought occurs to you, I'm angry. And all of a sudden, instantly, chain reaction, you inhabit that thought, you are angry. The benefit of meditation is that you, it, it positions you at a different angle to the voice in your head. The voice in your head that chases you out of bed in the morning, that heck heckles you all day long, that doesn't let you sleep at night, the voice in your head that narrates your entire life, that is your life, really, you can have a different relationship to it so that when it whispers in your ear, you're angry right now, you ought to be angry, you have every right to be angry, 
actually, you don't have to take it so seriously. And that is enormously valuable, especially for somebody with a, a, a stressful career uh, such as mine. And I'm not saying I'm un- this is a uniquely stressful career, but it's pretty stressful. There's a lot of ego, a lot of competition, a lot of attention. Um, it's been enormously helpful to keep me calm in difficult scenarios. Is it useful because it's a cue to reflect? So somebody cuts you off at the Starbucks and you ought, wouldn't have reflected before on it, but now you stop and reflect because you've had this experience and then it helps you handle it better? Yes. Uh, so you recognize the, the, the secret sauce of meditation, or at least Buddhist meditation, is something called mindfulness, which is a hopelessly boring word. It, it is so bland. But the, the concept is amazing, which is that you have, we have this ability to watch what's happening in our head without reacting. So we become a fish that does not bite the hook. And so you can recognize you're in line at Starbucks. Somebody cuts you off. You can recognize, oh, I'm angry right now. Uh, but I'm just going to sort of let it wash over me and for a minute reflect on do I need to react unthinkingly, mindlessly, or, can, or is there a smart response, which may be a sharp word to the person, or it may be, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But too often we are a puppet on the string of our ego, of our thinking mind, of the voice in the head, and it whispers, you're angry, you have, you have justification for being angry, and we just go there. And our whole lives are driven by this voice in the head. Why do we find ourselves with our hand in the fridge when we're not hungry? Why is it that we're driving down the road and we realize the last 20 minutes we can't remember why is it that we're blowing up at our kids and we know we shouldn't be why don't why can't we control these impulses and i think meditation is i know meditation is a way to have a better handle on that i don't think it's and we can talk about this i don't think it's a panacea and it's not going to come in and change your whole life and it's going to be all roses i think it's a leg up on a universal issue I, I heard you use a, a waterfall metaphor to describe this process. Could you describe that? Sure. Um, this is how uh, some of the uh, some people who practice meditation just, uh, will describe uh, mindfulness, this ability to see non-judgmentally and non-reactively what's happening in your mind at any given time. Uh, in a waterfall, if you think of the waterfall as your your stream of consciousness, so it's it's this constant flow of impulses and thoughts and emotions and physical sensations um mindfulness is the 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 crevice in the rock behind the waterfall from which you can watch it all go by recognize that it's happening without getting sucked into the stream and it's not magic it's not like uh you learn about this you practice meditation and every time you get angry it doesn't matter it's just that you i like to say 10 percent of the time actually you can catch yourself and uh in in that sense it's a superpower and by the way in case you think i'm making this up humans are classified as homo sapiens sapiens the man who thinks and knows he thinks so we know all of us you know if we think about it we know we have thoughts but we actually don't ever think about the mechanism of thought our whole world is experienced through this one filter the mind and we never really think about the, the machinery of that mind. I never did before I read Eckhart Tolle. It was totally new to me. It's not new to the people in, in the East, but in the Western cultures, we haven't thought about this. So the second sapiens, the one who knows he thinks, has atrophied. And I think this is a way to get that back. 
One thing I've heard mentioned a lot in the context of mindfulness is acceptance of emotions, mm-hmm. that you're, you're angry or you're hurt or whatever it happens to be, and you can use mindfulness to accept these rather than fight the emotions, ignore them, or get ruled by them. Is that part of the way you think about it as well? Absolutely, but I want to add, and this is critical, because people start hearing about acceptance. The other common Buddhist phrase is letting go, and an ambitious person will hear that and say, I need my stress. I, I don't want to be accepting everything. What Does that make you a passive, lifeless blob? You, I'm, I'm a person who's active in the world, wants to get things done. I need to be tough. Absolutely. This is not an, this is not an argument for uh, letting uh, people do bad things to you and you just blindly accept it. It is an argument for not responding to every external stimuli or internal stimulus uh, r- uh, blindly, reactively, reflexively, automatically. It's a way to say... Uh, what's in my best interest? Can I respond rather than react as a, um, with some with some smarts? And I think it's extremely strategic from that standpoint. I noticed, I've noticed in my job, it doesn't work all the time, but some percentage of the time, I'm making better decisions, less susceptible to the you know really uh, seductive whisper of the ego saying. You know, you ought to lose your. You got to blow off the handle, uh, blow off some steam at X or Y person who's doing X or Y thing to you, and uh, really give in to the paranoia. Um, I think that actually is not a plus. So the some of the stories we tell ourselves about how and why um, our racing minds can help us be ambitious are actually on the margins, and actually even in the main, untrue. And that this kind of recognition of what's happening in our mind and the making a decision based on accepting reality is uh, a leg up. Well, it sounds in some ways you give yourself permission to be human. Correct. Mm-hmm. You're not you're, at war with yourself. Right, that you're a, nat- you're a normal human being and you have feelings and your feelings are hurt or you get mad or all these things sort of happen as they do all of us. But with this kind of approach, you give yourself permission to feel those things and to experience them, and then to do something constructive about them. You just don't let them take you over or anything, but you can you can change, as you said. You can be ambitious about personal change, but at least accept these things as normal human behavior. But tell me if I'm wrong in interpreting I it. think they were exactly right. I mean, the, the AA expression, the first step is admitting it comes to mind. Right. Um, so you've been doing this four years, mm-hmm. um, and you said in the beginning you didn't like it, you got better at it. What is it? If I looked at you the second week you were doing this versus what you're doing now, how does it feel different to you? I'm doing more now. Mm-hmm. So I, and this is the advice I give to anybody who's thinking about starting meditation, because one of the arguments people present to me when when they're being resistant to the notion is I don't have time. Five minutes. I, I told myself when I started, I'm going to do five minutes. I'm going to do five minutes in perpetuity, unless it changes because I feel like doing it, not because of any external pressure. And uh, so over time, I've increased that to 30 minutes. But that's over four years, and that's also because, let's be honest, I've been writing a book about this, and I have a real investment in learning more. I don't know if I wasn't writing the book. Maybe I would do less. But I actually think there are real benefits that can be derived from five minutes. I don't have any scientific evidence that I can muster in support of that allegation. I think some commonsensical um, support for that notion. I think that the daily exercise of reminding yourself of the craziness of the ego, of the thinking mind, means that when 
it starts to run on overdrive or hyperdrive and run you and run out of control in an acute situation or in your response to a festering situation at work or at home, some percentage of the time, you're going to be able to have some distance from it. And that's a huge, huge benefit. So I've heard the term compassionate raised as one sort of approach to doing meditation. Can you explain that? So the type of meditation we've been talking about, or at least I, I kind of had in mind as we've uh, had this discussion is called mindfulness meditation. We've talked about the word mindfulness. Um, and that's a very specific kind of meditation. There is a sort of a corollary in the Buddhist tradition. Um, it's called compassion meditation. And it's a re- when I first heard about this, I thought this not- nothing has ever been dumber than this. You sit there, you generate an image of somebody, and you send them good vibes. And you kind of do this in a systematic way. You start with yourself. Uh, and then you go to uh, uh, a mentor, and then you go to a really close friend, and then you go to a difficult person, and then you go to the whole world. Uh, and you can add, subtract, whatever. But you get the point. It's like a, a, a Valentine's Day with a gun to your head. It, it sounds hopelessly dopey and, and uh, sentimental. And it kind of is. It's a little artificial. But if you think about goodwill uh, and compassion as a skill, not as something that just happens based on who knows, uh, whatever external conditions arise, just as something that you can get better at. This is a way to do that. So you sit there, you imagine people, and you send them goodwill, and, and you don't have to feel it. You just have to try. And over time, the, the trying has the same effect, and there's some science behind this, has the same effect as doing a bicep curl does on your bicep. You're getting better at the skill of not being a jerk, of having positive feelings towards other people. And as a, that, this, too, can have a whole set of positive physiological benefits in terms of making your, bringing down your stress response to things. Um, there's some evidence, it's early, that it can actually make you nicer in the real world. Let me just tell you quickly about a study that was done at Emory where uh, a scientist hooked up digital recorders to two groups of people. One group was taught some sort of, not meditation, but some sort of stress management thing. And then the other group was taught, I hope I'm getting this right, but the other group was taught compassion meditation. And the group that was taught compassion meditation, they went back and reviewed the audio tapes from you know weeks of them wearing it or whatever period of time. And they were using the word I less. They were using the word we more. They were spending more time with other people. They were laughing more and talking about things other than themselves more. So pretty i mean it's not dispositive it doesn't mean for sure this works that it actually makes you nicer but suggestive evidence and very very interesting also there's been some studies of preschoolers taught compassion meditation and i love the detail that they become more willing to give their stickers away to strangers <laughs> well that's a pretty big accomplishment mm-hmm. and, and you know and i'm sorry to just you didn't ask me this question but it's just coming to mind because we talked before about being effective being this is not about being some dopey, stupid uh, person who loves everybody unconditionally, even if they're mean to them, et cetera, et cetera. There is actually a very self-interested case to be made for trying to bring down your paranoia levels. When you stop seeing the world through this reflexive fear, assuming that everybody's out to get you, with the with some understanding of human frailty, yes, people will will do things that are bad, but uh, that everybody's actually doing their best for themselves, skillfully or unskillfully, right? That's a good lens to view it through. Even people who, whose actions you abhor, they're doing the best they think they can do 
for whatever reasons they have. That Placing that scrim over your view of the world brings down your paranoia levels and makes you make better decisions. You spend a lot less time in sort of senseless anger, which you know I think we've all experienced. And um, bringing that volume down on that, I'm not claiming it's going to go away, but bringing the volume down on that is a huge value add. I'd like to return to something you alluded to briefly along the way, which is that this might have application into eating and uh, control of overeating and things like that. What are some of your thoughts about that? I think, you know, the, the people see the pictures of the Buddha and they think, all right, maybe this guy's not the best spokesman for this. The Buddha, you know, especially in the sort of Chinese uh, uh, far eastern um, art of him, he's got a big belly. And so he, he may look like somebody who's not the, the avatar of, uh, of smart eating. However, the Buddha is originally from India slash Nepal. And if you look at the original artwork of him, he was a very slim man. He had a slight paunch. His argument back in the day was he had found the middle path between self-indulgence, which is the way most of us live, myself included, and self-denial, which was kind of de rigueur in the spiritual scene back then. Uh, the people who were trying to get enlightenment back then, they were denying themselves food. They were denying some, themselves sleep. He, the Buddha said neither of these ways is the right way to go. There's a middle path. There's a happy medium here. That's why he was portrayed with a slight punch. Over time, it grew into a beer belly as it f- went further east in its progression. Anyway, that's a long way of saying that uh, there is a, there is a, uh, a mindfulness-oriented technique that is a middle way between binging and dieting. I think we all know that one of the reasons why diets fail is that people feel like they're unsatisfied. They're deprived. And so they can stick with it for a certain period of time, but then after a while, they just get fed up. So the mindfulness technique is to teach people how to eat slowly, how to savor what they're eating, and to use mindfulness, which again is this non-judgmental witnessing of what's happening in your mind, to gauge whether you are in fact full. And to stop eating not at some arbitrary calorie count, but to stop eating when you're quote-unquote pleasantly full. Because we all know we eat for reasons that are way beyond whether we're hungry. I do this a lot. I was talking before about finding your hand in the fridge for reasons that you don't understand. So we eat because we're bored. We overeat because we're multitasking and our brain literally cannot register uh, satiety because we're, it's, it's, not get, it's too focused on other things. We eat when we're stressed. Appetite goes up when we're stressed. And appetite for specific fatty foods go up when we're stressed. And the uh, the satisfaction we derive from those foods actually goes up when we're stressed. And also portion size. Um, if it's all on your plate, you tend to just sort of eat what's on your plate. So the whole other set of variables that go into how much we eat, aside from hunger. And so this mindfulness uh, approach takes your actual hunger and puts it at the forefront. And there's no, the, the study, the research on this is, is very, very early days but the two people, the two scientists who are at the forefront, both of whom are women who got their uh, PhDs here at Yale, uh, are both very, very excited uh, about the early evidence. In fact, there's been one study done that shows that uh, among binge eaters, people with very serious problem, they did a nine-week program, uh, learned how to meditate and apply mindfulness to their eating, and the binges went from four a week down to one a week. And the binge, that one binge was less severe than the four uh, that they were indulging in heretofore. So there's some early evidence that this can work, and I just think on an intellectual level, the theory makes sense. I'd love to hear a little bit about your book. So I'm working on a book. 
hopefully I'll finish it. Hopefully it'll get published. But I, it's in one week from today, we're we're in early April in 2013. One week from today, I got to hand in this rough draft uh, to my publisher. And the book, the working title of the book is 10% Happier. The idea there is that I think that the discussion around meditation has been, uh, and the discussion around spirituality generally has been a little overblown. You look at the self-help shelves and, you know, the, all these titles promise you you're going to heal your life. Your, everything's going to be fixed. Uh, you, you read a lot about meditation. You're going to start very quickly running into words like enlightenment. I don't think that's too terribly helpful. I think, actually, there's a little bit counter-programming that can be done here. And we can talk about meditation in a very practical, very grounded way that it, so that it appeals to skeptical, ambitious strivers who would otherwise not be uh, interested in it. And so that's what I'm trying to do, just by telling my story as somebody who's a sort of a non-traditional meditator. Um, and it's my view that this is coming down the pike as a, as a potential public health revolution. And uh, we just, one of, the, one of the things that's missing is the science is there, some broader acceptance is there, but one of the things that's missing is this PR problem. There, you know, the great mass of Americans still associate the word meditation with hippies in a room with crystals and all the whole litany of things that we listed earlier. And I, I think if we can take away some of that stigma, more people will be open to something that will really help them. I really like the title, the 10% healthier, happier rather, make, makes, or it could be even healthier. Yeah, sure. Make, makes all the sense in the world that you're not promising, you know, the world's going to turn on its axis and all of a sudden there won't, won't be any conflict or that people's lives are going to get transformed completely, but there's a realistic outcome to be had here. And then people can see what the commitment is, five minutes a day, 30 minutes a day, whatever it is, and then they can decide whether it's worth it to be 10% happier. Yeah, it's a good return on investment. And I thank you for saying that. It's really nice. Um, You know, it's 10% healthier. It's 10% nicer, 10% happier. Um, These are reasonable goals. In fact, I say to my wife all the time when she points out that there's a pretty big delta a pretty big difference between you know meditator dan and husband dan when i'm being a jerk around the house i say you know like 10 percent is uh, it's pretty low bar so <laughs> don't expect that much uh and i also find that among my skeptical friends and pretty much 99 percent of my friends are skeptical about my this meditation jag i've been on that when i say to them when they say why are you doing this which is a kind of a way for them to say what's the matter with you and what's the name of this cult you've joined when I say, I do, I do it because it makes me 10% happier, I can watch the smirk go away. I can see people say, ah, you know what, actually, I wouldn't mind being 10% happier. That sounds reasonable. It makes perfect sense. Well, good luck with the book when Thank it comes you. out. And thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Our guest was Dan Harris, co-anchor of ABC News's Weekend Edition of Good Morning America and noted journalist. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org. You'll find a variety of resources on food and food policy issues, including a newsletter that gets dispatched, of course, at no cost, and a list of the other podcasts of outstanding people who have visited us at the Rudd Center. Thank you.